Even toward the end of his life, the Buddha continued to wander around to many different places, and in each place, the Royal Park, on Vulture Peak, in the mango grove, in the cool wood, in each place, he said, this is the teaching that I offer to you, the teaching on sila or ethics, on samadhi, meditation, on prajna, wisdom, these three foundations of Buddhist practice across all the traditions. Sila, which is translated as virtue, or I like ethics, or goodness, or integrity, it's the cornerstone on which the whole Noble Eightfold Path rests, and Larry is going to talk about this some tomorrow night. But the practice of sila, it's defined by these middle three parts of the Eightfold Path, which are uh, wise livelihood, wise speech, and wise conduct. And really that just covers how we behave in all the circumstances of our life, really how we are. And, and it's about how to be, how to act, how to behave in ways that bring us happiness. It's really what it's for. So there are three aspects to the sila, and one is the sila of restraint. And that's the five precepts that we know, um, you know, no killing, no stealing, no lying, no using other people sexually, no drugs or alcohol. And Jack likes to say it's really hard to meditate after a whole day of killing and stealing. And, you know, so there's a logic, a certain logic uh, to that. And the sila of restraint, it's like that meta phrase, may we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. And, and we're safe and we're kept safe and protected by these, um, these five precepts. Then there's the sila or ethics of cultivation. And this is looking at the five precepts as um, mindfulness trainings framed positively. May we cherish and protect all life. May we practice generosity by sharing our time and energy and material resources with those who are in need. May we be sexually responsible and careful. May we speak mindfully and listen carefully. May we take in and consume that which nourishes peace, well-being, and joy for myself and others. And then there's uh, Ati Sila, which is a kind of inevitable ethical stance that's the expression of understanding of really, of our innate integrity, this um, more spontaneous, just boundless expression of awakening. Sunday night, Jack spoke very compassionately about mindful awareness, this uh, prajna, wisdom. And last night, Wes got us to laugh about all the um, frustrating mind states that get in the way of dropping into samadhi, to meditation. And so tonight, I really want to talk about sila, or ethics, as a form of love, 
has a profound respect for what's possible in the human heart. When the Dalai Lama came to Boston, he did many things. Our conference on meditation and psychotherapy uh, at the Harvard Medical School. But one of the things he did was to open a center for ethics at MIT, Ethics for the New Millennium, which is endowed for um, scientific research about ethics in business and just different uh, facets of human life. And of course, it's not a moment too soon. Uh, the world is in quite a predicament, and we can see writ large all over the globe. We can see uh, the results of individual human behaviors, actions that are severed from sila, disconnected from ethics. Uh, we can just feel that uh, need for moral power and authority. This is a story of uh, sila as respect. A small unit of American soldiers was walking along a street in Najaf when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of buildings on either side of them. Fists waving, throats taut. They pressed in on the Americans who glanced at one another in terror. The Iraqis were shrieking. They were frantic with rage. This is it, I thought. A shot will come from somewhere. The Americans will open fire and the world will witness the Milai massacre of the Iraq war. At that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said impassive behind surfer sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he were crazy. And then, one after another, swaying in their bulky armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell silent and their anger subsided. The officer ordered his men to withdraw. The officer in charge was named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes, and the New Yorker reporter who wrote about this tracked him down months later at his home in Iowa to find out who had taught him to tame a crowd like that. He said that it was just an obvious solution that it was a gesture of respect. And shortly after that fraught experience in Najaf, uh, the new Army Chief of Staff, General Shinseki, this was in 2005, this happened, concluded that its officers weren't prepared to innovate in this incoherent, asymmetrical war, and that most of the training manuals in use were non-essential and meaningless. Sila is our training manual. It arises as our gesture of respect to each other and to the life that we share. Our precepts aren't a set of rules that we apply to ourselves, you know, or rebel against like teenagers trying to control our out-of-control selves to comply with some 
um, external authority. Because then we're in the territory of those army training manuals that are um, non-essential at best and useless at worst. But the mindfulness trainings, a path to happiness and self-compassion, to a loving and intimate connection with our own body and our own hearts, it's different. Listen to this way of uh, expressing the first one to cherish all life. Extend your awareness into the bodies of other living beings. Feel what those others are feeling. Abandon being so local. Day by day, constrictions will loosen as you become attuned to the current of life flowing through us all. So this uh, vow to cherish all life, obviously at the outer level or the level of restraint, it's about you know not killing things. Um, the mouse who lives in my little studio or these flying, they look like kind of flying daddy long legs, um, you know, just leaving them alone. Uh, that's the literal meaning of just being attentive to all forms of life. And I wanted to find um, a New Yorker cartoon for each one of these precepts. And the one I found for this one is, um, it shows two cavemen. One is holding a club, you know, they're dressed in their cavemen furs or skins, whatever they're wearing, and they always have that on in the cartoons. And one is carrying a club and the other one has a spear. And, and the one guy is saying to his buddy, he says, I blame it all on those violent cave paintings. <laughs> so here in retreat, we're pretty protected from all that. So we can really focus on the inner or compassionate meaning, the sila of cultivation, and the adi sila. Um, and so we're really working to develop caring or more cherishing relationship. From the meditative point of view, we're working to develop this relationship of respect, this gesture of respect with our own minds and hearts toward our own being. And, and this is really different from grasping at or clinging to the self. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, they use a phrase, uh, self-cherishing, but it's not a good thing. It points to this grasping or clinging or always putting ourselves first, being obsessed with ourselves and what we want and need and getting it and all that. And, uh, but I like, I think self-cherishing, I think if only we were self-cherishing, right? If only we really were like that with ourselves, just compassionate and generous and, um, and bringing that generosity of mindfulness itself that non-interfering, non-intrusive offering of attention that Larry was talking about this morning in the meditation instructions. Um, one thing that His Holiness said very clearly on Friday, uh, he said, concern for one's own well-being must be there. If you hate yourself, it's difficult to develop genuine concern for others. And then he asked, why do you develop 
self-hate, you know, hate towards yourself or anger towards yourself. He said it's based on, this was very interesting, he said it's based on some inner longing for perfection. And when you see yourself failing, like failing to meet that standard of perfectionism, then you get critical and judge yourself for that. He said the basis for this perfectionism is, he didn't use the word perfectionism, but that's what he was talking about. He said the basis for it is expectation. And that's the source of failure. It's like what we were talking about on Saturday with the metta instructions, that this practice of befriending yourself through metta, through goodwill, that most of the difficulties with doing that are because of the expectation that we should be feeling a certain way. And then the um, disappointment or frustration and self-judgment for not feeling that way. So another way of looking at it is that what's expressed in the Zen tradition in the first bodhisattva vow, that sentient beings are numberless, I vow to free them all. What does it mean to free them all? I think it really means to just allow them to be who or as they are. And we're talking about the many beings in our own hearts, the many beings that you see all day long here, appearing and disappearing, maybe not disappearing, maybe appearing and hanging around, um, but you see them, you know, and how about the relentless critic? We definitely want to annihilate that one. Can we just let it, you know, just let it be there? and not identify with it? How about the um, internalized abuser who downloaded their rage and disgust and despair into a child's open heart? What about that one? Do we blame the violent cave paintings, you know, something outside of ourselves, or just recognize this unwelcome neighbor knocking on our mind door? And just be able to say, okay, you again. You know, it doesn't have to be really dramatic. We don't have to be glad to see some of these beings appear. But we can acknowledge their closeness to us without necessarily, you know, inviting them in and entertaining them and getting really involved with them. We can return to the experience of breathing here, now. I think cherishing or um, respecting all life means not trying to annihilate or shoot down uh, our thoughts either. You know, we can notice our aversion to the person who's taking such a long time to get their shoes on. And our shoes are behind their shoes, so we have to wait. One student talked about her aversion to someone in the kitchen, not on this retreat, uh, during her, who, you know, um, which one of my yoga meditation jobs, I mean, my work meditation partners is it? Um, but she was talking about aversion to one of her partners in the uh, work meditation, and she said she could just see it squirt out of her mind, like a squid squirting black ink, 
into the water. And that's what it felt like. And when she saw it, oh, wow, this is how I project aversion into my consciousness. This is how I do it. With this awareness, the aversion lessened its grip. And she didn't have to kill it uh, or try to, you know, annihilate herself for having it. She could see just the way that she would identify with those thoughts. This is from um, a translation of some yoga sutras uh, by a friend and colleague, Lauren Roche, in Los Angeles. Consider all the pain and all the pleasure you've ever experienced as waves on a very deep ocean, which you are. From the depths, witness those waves rolling along so bravely always changing, beautiful in their self-sustaining power. Marvel that once you identified with only the surface of this ocean. Now embrace waves, depths, undersea mountains out to the farthest shore. And the Adisila, the, in the Tibetan, they talk about outer, inner, and secret meanings of things. They love the secret meanings of things. The mystical meaning is that peace that passeth understanding, just the true happiness and peace that you all have glimpsed at least a fraction of a second here, uh, where no thought of killing could possibly arise, no thought of taking the life away from anything or any part of yourself, just seeing the transparency and transiency of everything that appears in our consciousness, appears and disappears. Again, Lauren's translation, I love this one. Just as desire leaps up and you perceive the flash, the sparkle, quit from its play and maintain awareness in that clear and shining place from which all desire springs. And Sila points us to that clear and shining place of mindful awareness. I know, sometimes it's incredibly murky and uh, unclear, but we can find that clear and shining place anytime we're just a little bit mindful about ourselves uh, and realize when we say these words like shining, it, it's not like you have to actually see glittering white light or something. It just means that brightness of seeing. You're doing it right now. And this is the seal that cools these intense, um, the intense reactivity that grips our minds and hearts. And um, it's where we can find relief in the wholeness of an undivided heart, a heart that's free from conflict. So we vow to protect and cherish this life of all worlds and realize there's no self to 
control or um, annihilate. Just we can forget about control. And I mean, we might as well forget about control. And uh, somebody asked a question about control, you know, and we're not talking about choice, the ability to choose, um, to choose, say, a wiser response than uh, a flash of reactivity. Sometimes we have that space of mindfulness that lets us choose, but about just letting the self be itself and, and letting it change, because it will. So we're not looking really at, you know, I mean, we offer you guidance, but the techniques or methods are not so important. They're really just ways to access your own uh, sincere openness, your own attention to the life of this moment. So the second one is about not stealing or practicing generosity. And here's the cartoon. Uh, There are two men in business suits, and they're sitting together at a bar. One of them is reading the paper. They're uh, talking, and the other one says, every day I ask myself, am I embezzling enough for retirement? (laughs) So this one, of course, is about not embezzling, not taking that which is not given, and... Uh, and having gratitude for what is given. And there's a really, um, the essential attitude is this, in Zen we called it enough mind, this mind of contentment, of just feeling that the ingredients of this moment, trusting that the ingredients of this moment are enough, that we have all that we need in any given moment to wake up. Because after all, I mean, if you think about it, or actually just don't think about it too much, but the contents of any given moment, whatever it is, are the contents of our awakening when we're present with them. It's enough. It doesn't have to be anything else but what it is. We don't have to steal from any other moment, or, uh, but just to gather in the ingredients of this moment and receive them. It's kind of like being um, a mindful sponge. Uh, It's not grabbing for them. There was this song years ago, and the refrain was, Abracadabra, I want to reach out and grab you. And we know that feeling, you know, we just want to reach out and grab certain moments. But the 13th... um, Century Zen master uh, Dogen, he said, you know, when you feel that abracadabra, I want to reach out and grab you. He didn't use those words, but um, (laughs) that sense of just, you know, leaning in to the experience, anticipating something, wanting something, just take a backward step. And you can do it. I sometimes do it just with my body, you know, just leaning back, maybe maybe a quarter of an inch, half an inch. But it feels different. You can try it. It just feels different. It's like leaning back just slightly into that space of receptivity. I can't go too far back or you can't hear me. Um, That space of receptivity, of receiving the moment, of allowing 
the moment to come to us and uh, awaken us with a sound, a perception, a thought, a feeling, anything. A car in the distance. And it's compassionate not to steal time from ourselves. This is very precious time. You know, you might look forward and think, oh my God, you have so many days still to come. The end of the third day, you can really feel like, um, I don't know, La Brea Tar Pits comes to mind. You know, something <laughs> really, really sticky and dark. And you may not feel that way, but it's possible on the third day to feel that way. And I remember... Um, I was having a meeting with Joseph in a long retreat, and he was asking me sort of what I did in the in-between times between the, you know, outside of formal practice. And I said, well, you know, I, I often I said some things I do walking, and I said, but I also, I just go to my room. And he said, um, well, what do you do there? And... I quickly scanned, you know, what could I tell him about what I did in my room? Because I didn't have a roommate, you know, and what did I do there? Okay, so, well, I didn't just look at my stuff, like Wes said. <laughs> I move my stuff around. <laughs> I take it from maybe the drawer to a shelf. Or um, maybe from just one place to another. And... Maybe sometimes I touch things uh, or fold them again or maybe wash something in the sink. There's lots to do. Um, I putter. I remember his face when I used the word putter. It was a kind of incredibly pained disbelief. Like you would use your precious retreat time to putter <laughs> in your room. So, um, reflect on it. Uh, you know, this is a way of contemplating our sila. What are we doing? And how come we're doing it? I really hadn't given much thought to it before because we have a tendency to compartmentalize. You know, certain things are part of our practice, and then there are these kind of blank spots of oblivion that just, I don't know, they just aren't. You know, or that in your room is one, or um, in my everyday life, I know I'm pretty conscious I eat a lot of healthy food until about nine at night. And then, I don't know, something happens. It just changes. Everything changes. And, but it doesn't count somehow because it's like a pocket of oblivion. And corn chips go in there, mostly corn chips, but, you know, sometimes other things. And, and somehow I think of myself as a person who just eats really healthy food and is quite... So, you know, we have these tendencies to leave certain areas. I mean, I'm just mentioning pretty benign ones, but uh, we do other things too, and we leave them outside of our practice. And this is actually a way of stealing the energy of our practice from ourselves. Um, 
And besides, everything that we leave outside of our practice actually gets more powerful because it's outside of awareness. It's not being, you know, well, mindfulness just isn't going there. And so the sila, the respect, the, all those things, I mean, they just, they're kind of not happening in that space. We find time on the cushion for all kinds of trivial pursuits. One very well-known Buddhist author came in for a meeting once with me. She was sitting in a retreat and said, well, I've counted all my money now. And she was kind of looking for what else to do uh, on the cushion. She had a sense of humor about it, but it's not that funny, really. Um, it's been going on since the beginningless past and for the endless future. Um, there's another way that we sometimes um, don't accept what's given or can steal from ourselves. Uh, in Zen there's an expression, don't ride another's horse. Don't draw another's bow. Don't ride another's horse. And it has to do with looking at other people and how they're being, uh, how they're walking, uh, how still they're sitting, and then comparing ourselves to them. Maybe even imagining it would be better to be them. So this is how the thinking mind, this comparing mind, can be like a thief. It actually can um, steal our experience and appropriate it and do unpleasant things with it. Um, you know, catapulting us away from what's actually happening into thoughts about what should be happening. Uh, you know, Kristen was talking about doubt coming and just like stealing her away from the retreat. And we all know what that's like. Um, I've had it arise. Uh, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of my mom's dying. And there's a lot of, I've been very sad. I'm not sad at all in this moment. I'm very happy to be here with you. But there's been a lot of sadness. And uh, someone was talking in the small group today about how there's so much aliveness, actually, in the experience of sadness. It's very alive, very different from depression that way. And yet, doubt, if I doubt myself, oh, you know, you shouldn't have gone back and forth to the retreat. You should have just stayed by her side. That kind of doubt, it steals the aliveness, just the pure aliveness of the sadness away and takes me into, I call it kind of grief seeping out sideways. You know, it's a crooked kind of grief. It feels terrible, terrible. This is from uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Stephanie Morgan, friend in Boston. Compassion and wisdom aren't personal. By this I mean that they're not commodities that we can get for ourselves so that we can be wise and compassionate. But of course we try to do exactly this. We gather to, she, this is from a talk she gave on Friday, uh, Saturday. I missed it, but she sent it to me. We gather here together in Boston, and we wish that the Dalai Lama could transform us. 
almost as if something might rub off on us. And an aspect of our yearning is a genuine desire to wake up and be able to alleviate suffering in ourselves and our world. But these factors of wisdom and compassion aren't something we can get and own and make into a story about ourselves. They really aren't about us. And when, um, and His Holiness, I mean, His humility, constant humility, it's, it's just one of the constant things that He expresses over and over again. Compassion and wisdom, this is Stephanie again, um, spring from the ground of intimate relationship. Intimate relationship in the broadest and deepest sense of relationship. We most often hear the word relationship from our anthropocentric vantage points. While our humanity is a powerful bridge, it's not the be-all and end-all. Our sentience enables us to be intimately related in a more vast way. The Buddha was a wandering saint. He carried his begging bowl and he brought peace to all those whose lives he touched with his very presence. And his holiness brings happiness like that. We were all in the happy zone, everybody. Such a gift. He, I mean, the Buddha is still offering his bowl to us with these teachings of sila, samadhi, prajna, his expression of compassion and generosity giving freely and showing us how we too can give freely of ourselves for the benefit of all life. And this is really, this brings happiness. It's actually one of the greatest happinesses or joys that a human being can have. Just um, the Buddha, a story about um, a laywoman who wanted to be, to practice generosity. She wanted to buy a new uh, robes for all the monastics, for the monks and nuns, and she just wanted to offer all this fabric and have them made, and it's a big gift. And the Buddha, the Buddha said, you know, why? Why do you want to offer this? He wanted to examine her, her motivation for doing this, and she said, because it'll make me so happy when I see the monks and nuns walking around, and every time I see one of them in their new robes, I'm just going to feel so happy. And I remember reading that and thinking, wrong wrong. That's all about you. And the Buddha said, that's wonderful. That's right. And he received her gift. So the third one, uh, not misusing our sexuality or being respectful with it. Um, Here's the cartoon. Uh, This is a minister And she's speaking to a bride as she stands at the wedding altar. Now, you just feel free to change genders. Uh, This is, you know, Rebecca talking to Richard, but you can make it, um, you know, Jack talking to Richard or Susan talking to Rebecca or, you know, whatever um, will speak to you. And do you, Rebecca, promise to make love only to Richard month after month? Year after year, decade after decade, 
until one of you is dead? It's hard not to misuse our sexuality, isn't it? Anyway, how do we relate to our sexuality on retreat? So outerly, of course, you respect people's boundaries. You don't flirt or stare at them, do you? You don't leave flirty notes for anybody. And even if you imagine such contact might be welcome, you really don't know. So you don't do it. And it's also important to remember the huge and reckless harm that is done um, in the heat of sexual desire often, and especially when it's linked to drugs and alcohol, which is the fifth mindfulness training that deals with substance abuse. But innerly, to be respectful of our sexuality, um, we can understand it's the nature of the sun to radiate light, right? It's the nature of the body to radiate sexual energy and warmth, of course. So a healthy way to relate to sexuality innerly is to not make an object of this powerful energy or of somebody else not to suppress or shut down, but to honor the movement of life in the form of this powerful energy. To try not to just go into habitual reactions that we know so well, but to be open. Can this energy be felt as the energy of life force itself? Sparks of sensation. The intersection of life force with the body. The energy of awakening to, oh, oh, it's like this. Sexual energy is like this. We can be quite lucid and clear about it. This is, again, from Lauren's translation. He says, At the moment of orgasm, the truth is illumined the one everyone longs for. Lovemaking is riding the currents of excitation into revelation. Two rivers flow together. The body becomes quivering. In that, there's no inside and no outside. There's only the delight of union. The mind releases itself into this energy and the body knows where it came from. This is reality, and it's always here. Everyone craves the source, and it's everywhere. Or, it's another one, one more. When by oneself, flooded with delight, simply in the memory of that kiss, that lick, that taste of nectar, caress, embrace, that particular pressure. Enter the joy through the open door of meditation and know it as your own. That ocean of joy as you. 
or like a weary or preoccupied partner, we can gently say to a recurring fantasy, not now. Thank you, but not now. We can form the intention to set imagination aside and return to the simplicity of this moment, this breath, this sound, this body here. So we can train from the outside in by restraint and vows not to cross the naughty line, not to intoxicate ourselves with fantasies and so forth. And we can train from the inside out, working from compassionate trust in our natural goodness and integrity um, by resting in mindful awareness without trying to magnetize or grasp these experiences or sensations. And innerly, this is a really powerful way, this whole arena, to explore the three poisons of attraction, aversion, and indifference. And why are they called poisons? They're called poisons because they actually poison our experience of life. They're strategies of disconnecting from experience, from each other. Ways of separating, I want this, I want you. I don't want this, I don't want you. To see how attraction, that irresistible pull, it actually poisons our experience of being present with the moment. It clouds and enshrouds it in fantasy. As unpleasant as the moment may be, as pleasant as the fantasy is, we know from our practice that the way to contentment and clarity is through presence, through intimacy with what is, with our own bodies and our own hearts. Because deep down we know we're not separate from experience and we treasure the moments of actually realizing this, of experiencing life this way. And actually, we have to work from inside and outside and, and both. And, um, and not seeing this precept as just, you know, or any of them as just square, uptight, ungroovy, uncool, moralizing, but as a training and expression of what's possible for us uh, as awakening beings. That we can be at ease in our bodies and our hearts. And that we can feel empathy and caring about the untold suffering that is generated by derailed human sexuality. And then we can respect the power and magic of this endless movement of life itself. Mating and birthing and dying, coming into being. Somebody in the last retreat, the Dedicated Practitioners Program, said she saw the uh, tortoises mating. So this uh, next truth is um, about honesty, not lying. The cartoon shows a father. He's sitting in his big armchair and he's talking to his little boy. And he says, Honesty is a fine quality, Max but it's not the whole story. In the silence, it's hard to lie, 
But we can lie to ourselves, can't we? We can and we do. We're always adding on or, or trimming, adjusting, rewriting the autobiography. Uh, it's hard to face the truth sometimes. Adrian Rich says, it's important to do this because in doing so we do justice to our own complexity. It's important to do this because we can count on so few people to go that hard way with us. In lying to others, we end up lying to ourselves. We deny the importance of an event or a person and deprive ourselves of part of our lives. An honorable human relationship, that is one in which two people have the right to use the word love, is a process, delicate, violent, often terrifying for both persons involved a process of refining the truths they can tell each other. And we can this, see this in the same way toward ourselves. And it's important to do this, she says, because it breaks down uh, human self, isolation and delusion. And it's... Um, it's just important to do this. Um, the great theologian I'm forgetting oh yeah, Howard Thurman I just was thinking of Robert Thurman no, Howard Thurman uh, he was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. And, Jr. and to Maya Angelou and really considered one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century and he, he, was the, he was the dean of the Marsh Chapel at BU, so I was living in Boston when he died, and his loss was very keenly felt. He said, there's something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. It's the only true guide you will ever have. Well, one more quote. Um, and this is from President Obama. It's um, from an interview after he had just been elected senator. And I thank Howie for this quote, uh, for the article, the interview. Um, and he says, he's saying, so the biggest challenge, I think, is always maintaining your moral compass, your sila. Those are the conversations I'm having internally. I'm measuring my actions against that inner voice that for me at least, <clears throat> that for me at least is audible, is active. It tells me where I think I'm on track and where I think I'm off track. And it's, it's interesting to listen to this now after the election, because this was after a different election. He says, it's interesting, particularly now after this election, because it comes with a lot of celebrity. I always think of politics as having two sides. There's a vanity aspect to it, and then there's a substantive, substantive part of politics. He says, now you need some sizzle with the steak to be effective. But it's easy to get swept up in the vanity side of it, the desire to be liked and recognized and important. 
it's important for me throughout the day to measure and take stock and say now, am I doing this because I think it's advantageous to me politically or because I think it's the right thing to do? Are you checking for altruism, says the interviewer. He said, it's interesting. The most powerful political moments for me come when I feel like my actions are aligned with a certain truth. I can feel it. When I'm talking to a group and I'm saying something truthful, I can feel a power that comes out of those statements that's different from when I'm just being glib or clever. So the last one. The cartoon. It's in a bar and the bartender is saying to somebody behind the bar, it's a guy, he's saying, I'm cutting you off, pal. You've had enough Snapple. <laughs> so this working with this precept in the retreat is really about looking at the way that we use substances to soothe or numb or console or find love. What is intoxicating for us? And to really see the difficulties and challenges, um, the discomforts of being here as an invitation to trust that retreat is a crucible. It's a place where there is a transformation, an alchemical transformation happening. The Dalai Lama talked about, somebody asked him about uh, suffering and torture and so forth, and he doesn't answer those questions directly, but he did talk about his own suffering of having to leave Tibet, and, and then he said something so interesting. He said, but if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here today. He said, I would be sitting back in the Potala Palace. And then he kind of went like this. We made this sort of Dalai Lama sitting in the palace gesture, you know. He said, and what good would that do? You know, he's really seeing what he's been able to accomplish because of that suffering. It's been a crucible for him because of the way he's handled it. So to nourish ourselves with the practice here, feeling the earth and the presence of our own being. And this is spiritual sobriety. Drinking life straight up as it is, drinking it in, receiving the moment, not numbing or shutting down, but just letting that larger experience flow through. From the Dhammapada, people who recognize their own mistakes and change their ways Illumine the world like the moon when freed from a cloud. The Buddha said this is the most important thing in practice. To recognize our own mistakes and change our ways. Then we illumine the world like the moon when freed from a cloud. So we can contemplate our sila and be filled with happiness and joy. One of the great things about sitting and being in retreat, my first teacher used to say, well, you know, you're not making more bad karma. 
So at the very least, we can enjoy that idea and that actuality. So I want to end with this exchange between the Buddha and Ananda, his cousin and disciple. Ananda says, What, O Buddha, is the reward and blessing of sila? And the Buddha says, Freedom from remorse, Ananda. And what's the reward and blessing of freedom from remorse? Asks Ananda. Joy, says the Buddha. And of joy? Rapture, Ananda. And of rapture? Tranquility, Ananda. And of tranquility? Happiness, Ananda. And of happiness? Concentration, Ananda. And of concentration? Seeing clearly, knowing the nature of reality. And of seeing clearly and knowing the nature of reality? Letting go, non-attachment, Ananda. And of letting go and non-attachment? The experience of freedom, of liberation, Ananda. So let's sit for a minute. Just letting the sound of the crickets lead you back here, sitting still. Letting the stillness of the retreat water your heart and restore your soul. Doing this, surely the goodness and mercy of Sila will follow you all the days of your life here. Thank you for your kind attention. Enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.